All right, well, last week we began uh, our exposition of the book of Revelation. And if you remember, one of the things I talked about in Revelation was the style of how it's written. It's written in apocalyptic literature. That's something that we're not generally so familiar with it. It's apocalyptic means unveiling. It means revealing. And apocalyptic literature really is, is intended to, to lift the veil between heaven and earth. Uh, it reveals the mysteries of the, the spiritual world with visits to heaven and strange vision, visions of the future. And one of the things that I spoke about um, last week was how apocalyptic literature works a, a little bit like our political cartoons. And I showed you some of them last week. And I want to show you some more this week just to ingrain in you the idea uh, that the, the image of Scripture is, is, is indeed sort of like these uh, political cartoons. Um, you know, because indeed the, the reality of what John saw is the content, say, of the cartoon, but there's something behind that, which is the meaning of it. So the, the reality is, is not what's there, but the reality is behind it. And, and so take, for instance, this cartoon, right? We have a, a big panda bear, and he's sitting on this uh, bamboo branch that's beginning to break, and he's got a kind of worried look on his face. What might this mean? Now, in the genre of, of political cartoons, a panda is representative of something. Do you, do you know what panda represents in general? China, it does. Yeah, so we got an idea here that something in China is wrong. And that's really apocalyptic literature, is, is that you see this, you see China, and you see, okay, some, something that's wrong. We might not quite understand exactly what's, what's wrong, but something's nearing the breaking point. Maybe it's a, a one-child policy, or maybe it's the, the stability of the government, or, or maybe a, a threat with North Korea. Like, all, all these types of things it could mean, but with another label, it becomes clear. The, the cartoon here just represents China's economy, how it's on the brink, and potentially may collapse. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, whatever. But there, there are times when China's economy is, is fragile, is what that's communicating. But, but see, John, if this was apocalyptic literature, would describe the panda on the branch, but it means it's China and the economy in China. So likewise, this one, right? I gave this one to you on the weekly word, right? Just trying to tease you a, a little bit. Or these uh, birds on the telephone wire, and five of them are staring at the one big one, and the, the five are doves holding olive branches in their beaks, which means something, what does that mean? They're seeking peace, right? They're, they're seeking peace there, and the, the bird on the right, though, looks like a mean, dark vulture, and they're not interested in this peace, and so, right, as, as you thought about this, do any of you have an idea of what this might be at all? I mean, you spend any time thinking about this, what it might be? Maybe when you're going to get it right away, but... Okay, well, let's see there. Russia and others seeking to try to get peace with Russia. That's a good, that's legit. That's not exactly what this cartoon is, but yeah, that fits. Like, so, and I'm just even saying, right, we see the idea of people seeking peace, but someone not seeking peace, and so there's antagonism there. Any other thoughts on that, what it may have been? Because of what? Okay. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I thought about some things. Maybe it's schools in the NCAA trying to make peace with the television networks and all the money, and the television networks don't want anything to do with that. I, 
Or I was thinking maybe there's a coalition in Congress, but there's some opponent in Congress who doesn't want that. Or maybe parents wanting peace with their schools and then the school board being against them. I, I'm not, could mean a lot of those things, but with some labels, right, it, it comes to pass that this particular cartoon was a, a cartoon talking about the Middle East and how, according to this cartoon, you had Israel, Egypt, Jordan, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain seeking peace in the Middle East, but Palestine wants nothing of it. Right? Now, again, right, there's political talks there about whether it's true or not, but that's, that's the meaning of the picture. Okay, I, I got one last one for you. Right? This is a strange picture. <laughs> this big tree with a couple branches on it, and the top branch has a chainsaw somehow in its grasp of the, the branches, and it appears as if this has uh, chopped off the other branches to the tree. Right? This could mean a lot of different things. And just to teach you about Revelation, I'm not going to tell you what it means. Okay? Because um, I I want you to think about Revelation the way it works. Um, There's much mystery to the ways of God. There's much mystery in the book of Revelation. And um, there's much that we don't understand. Uh, The picture's clear to be sure. Right? You, you, you see this chainsaw and it's kind of hitting off at its base and, and, and cutting things off, the branches off of there. But you might not know. And there might be images in Revelation that you can clearly see the images and understand them, but you might not understand what's behind them. Um, just, just even just working through Daniel this week, Daniel saw an image, I think it's in Daniel chapter 10, of a, of a man with a with a, a linen shroud around him and or maybe maybe it's chapter nine i think um maybe it's ten i i, I forget there's a, there's a chapter there where where gabriel comes and explains the vision of daniel and daniel's still like the writer the one who wrote it like i have no idea what it means he didn't understand but god knows what it means and um i know what this means all right maybe i'll reveal it to you at some time but not today i just want you to be content realizing there's lots in revelation that we're just flat out not going to understand and we see the picture, and, and it is a picture book, and there's something where something's cutting off other things. That's just how it is. But I labor this morning, put this category in your mind, just so you understand how apocalyptic literature works. We need to be okay with unanswered questions. But having said all this, not all of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. There's some portions that read like epistles, like what Paul wrote, straightforward and to the point. And in fact, today is one of those. However, there's some apocalyptic kind of kind of showered in there just a, a little bit. Well, you'll get to see that as we work through that. So you can take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 1. And this morning, the title of my message is The Greetings of the Revelation. And, and you can see the greeting right there in verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's, that's a typical way that people in the first century would write their letters. They would identify their name, they would identify the recipients, and they would give them a brief greeting. And here we see the name is, the author identifies himself as John. We see the recipients of a letter as the, the seven churches that are in Asia. And we see the greeting, grace to you and peace. So the author, the recipients, the greeting. Today we do it differently, right? 
at, at the beginning of our letters, we write, dear so-and-so, right? To whom it may concern. And then we write the body of our, of our letter. Yada, 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 yada. And then we end it with, sincerely, Steve Brandon. So we write the recipients and then maybe some a greeting in there, but then the body and then the, the salutation at the end. But not so with uh, New, New Testament letters. It's how they, how they did it. They did author, recipient, and greetings. In fact, if you consider Paul's letter, I look through every single one of Paul's letters. And every single one starts off with Paul to so-and-so, grace and peace to you. Something to that effect. Paul, to those who are in Rome, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, to the church of God that's in Corinth, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, to the churches of Galatia, Paul to Timothy, Paul to Titus, Paul to Philemon, grace to you. And every time when Paul opens up a letter, that's, that's what he does. Now, it's not that these are the only words. It's not just says, Paul, to this, grace to you. Oftentimes, there's, there are other words around there which, which fill it out a little bit, put some originality into it. And if you're good at Bible interpretation, you know that those things oftentimes that's mentioned in the, uh, uh, in the, in the greetings are going to show up as important things later on as Paul uses these words just to, to set up what he's going to talk about. And, and so likewise, that's exactly what John does here. He sets up the entire book of Revelation in his greeting, and he centers his greeting around God. Kind of gives you an indication about what is important in Revelation. God is important. Not so much timelines, when things will happen, trying to anticipate, trying to guess what images or pictures might mean. No, it's God. Every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ. That's how he sets up Revelation. And that's what we're going to see here today. So just listen to his words. Think about how these words center upon God. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Just all about God. And just even here as we begin Revelation, this is, we just need to think about the Lord. And just think about him and his majesty, because here's the picture that's painted, is the sovereign God. Next week, we're going to look at the author, John, because in verse 9, if you see, John is going to describe his, his situation about who he is and how the revelation appeared to him. So we'll, we'll pick up John, the author, then. Um, and when we come to chapters 2 and 3, we'll, we'll talk also about the seven churches, um, because they, they will come up. Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, right? Just they're going to be to whom Paul John is writing. But today, right, we're going to focus upon the greeting. That's the title of my message, right? The greetings of the revelation. 
because the others are going to come up later and they'll come up in more detail. We're not going to take time now with that. And so by way of outline this morning, I basically have four words. It's going to give you a sense of a hook to hang things on as we get a sense of what John's saying here. And my first word is this, it's Trinity. Because in verses 4 through 5a, first half of verse 5, we're going to see the Trinity mentioned. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as the Catechism says, they are three persons, the same in substance, equal in power and authority. And here they are, from the three. So first, let's look at a description of God the Father. Chapter 1, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a description of God. We see that a description of God of just His, his being, His essence. He's the one who is, He's the one who was, and He's the one who is to come. Now, I mentioned also last week about how important it is to read your Bible if you want to understand Revelation. We're going to see that all of these images and and pictures and depictions of God all come from the Old Testament. Maybe not a chapter and a verse, but they're all allusions to the Old Testament. And this one here, when it speaks about a God who is and was and is to come, reveals back, goes back to the time when God revealed himself to Moses. Remember God, Moses, the burning bush? He saw that bush, it was burning. And um, he, he didn't, it was burning, but it wasn't consumed. It was on fire, but it was still, it was still there. And he went to investigate it and and God appeared to him. He says, take off your sandals for the feet on which you're standing is holy ground. And he began to reveal himself. He's going to show that, that through Moses, he's going to redeem his people Israel. And Moses is kind of doubtful about that. And he says, well, what if I go? What, what, what do I tell him your name is? And God says, remember what his name was? I am that I am. From which we get the word Yahweh. Yigya is the verb being, is. When God revealed himself and revealed his name, he revealed himself as I am, or being, if you will. And John expressed it perfectly here. When he describes God the Father, he describes him as he who is and was and is to come. And we're going to see this again if you look down at verse 8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. We're going to see that in chapter 4 when the four living creatures are flying around the throne of God. They're going to give honor and glory to God who was and is and is to come. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8. There never was a time when God wasn't. There will never be a time when God won't be. He is. He is the everlasting now. That's who God is. It's the Father. And then we see the Holy Spirit. And from the seven spirits who bar before His throne, verse 4. And welcome to apocalyptic literature. Right? If we don't understand apocalyptic, we might take these seven spirits before the throne and say, well, it's not Trinity. It's not three members of the Trinity. Actually, there are nine people of the Trinity. Seven spirits of God and the Father and the Son. I have seen people do that before, but that's just to deny the rest of the Bible. We know the Bible is Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so most commentators understand that this here, it's, it's, it's speaking of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's not seven spirits, it's not angels, 
Because this is like coming with divine authority. This is like God the Father with God the Son. It's certainly got to be the Spirit here. And so with, with seven spirits, they often say, well, this is probably the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. As George Eldon Ladd says, <clears throat> he just says that John is describing the Holy Spirit in his sevenfold fullness. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit mentioned this way in future chapters of Revelation. Seven spirits. Now, again, right, if you know your Old Testament, right, who is and who was and is to come, you're like, oh, that sounds a lot like the name of God and the revelation of that. If you know your Old Testament, this would be like Zechariah chapter 4, which Zechariah sees this, this image of a golden lampstand. And on this lampstand, one, there are seven lamps on this one lampstand. And when Zechariah speaks to the angel about this vision, he's confused. He says, what, what, what is this lampstand? The angel says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Showing it's, it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that, that illumines, it goes forth. But it's the one spirit with seven lamps. And that's probably the illusion that John is working from here. It's the seven spirits, the seven lamps, which is part of one spirit, which is part of one lampstand. So it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we've gone out of order than we normally do. It's the, the, the Father and then the Spirit and now the Son. And the Son is going to dominate this uh, section here about God, which ought to help us to realize that the revelation, yes, is about God, but it's about Jesus, as I told you last week. Now we've seen the Father, seen the Spirit, and now the Son. And he's described with these words, chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Three designations of Jesus he's talking about here. Faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. And again, if you know your Bible, you might be thinking, oh, where does that come from? And you think Psalm 89 comes to mind. Because all three of these terms are mentioned there in Psalm 89. And if you know your Bible, you know what Psalm 89 is about. Psalm 89 was written by Ethan, and he's writing about the Davidic covenant and the promise of God through David to provide a Messiah and how that promise is firm and secure. And the Messiah in this passage is described as being a a faithful witness and a, a firstborn and ruler of the kings of the earth. Faithful witness. We read in Psalm 89, verse 36, of how David's offspring will endure forever. And then then there's a comparison about the sun and the moon, how they likewise are are faithful witnesses in the sky. It's just they're they're always there. So likewise, the enduring offspring of David will be a faithful witness to the promises of God. And that's what Jesus is. He come. He's the faithful witness that He's indeed fulfilled the Davidic covenant, spoken of in Second Samuel chapter seven, and second, Jesus described here as the firstborn of the dead. Now that can that can throw us for a loop sometimes because we think firstborn. Well, that's the very first one who is born. Well, that's not necessarily the case because the firstborn really means the prominent one, and, and which is usually the firstborn. But like if you if you study and, and think about Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, Manasseh was born first, but Ephraim is called in the Scriptures the firstborn. He's the one that gets prominent place. And so likewise here, with Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, doesn't mean that He was the first one who was raised from the dead. 
Elijah raised people from the dead. Jesus raised people from the dead. No, the firstborn means the place of prominence. And again, we turn to Psalm 89. We read in verse 27 that I will make him the firstborn. That is, he's the one prominent. Of all the, the children of the line of David, he's going to be the prominent one. And, and that took place, if you know Psalm 2, it took place when, when God sent Jesus, set Jesus on the throne. Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. I have set my king on Zion. Today I have begotten you, as even when it says. And in Acts 13, that describes about how that is uh, the resurrection, is when that took place. And Jesus rightly called the firstborn of the dead, the, the, the prominent one, risen up out of the dead. And then we have the ruler of the kings of the earth. And again, Psalm 89. This comes right out of Psalm 89. Listen to the rest of verse 27. Uh, 27 where it says, I will make him a firstborn. It says, I will make him a firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Here's the promise of the Messiah of the line of David is going to be the highest of the kings of the earth. That's exactly what we're, we're describing here. And so John, in his writing, by the way, John is like a plagiarist. He just writes what he knows is true of the Old Testament. And he just brings them into his, his writing. That's why I say, right, if you, if you want to know the book of Revelation, right, it has more allusions to the Old Testament than any other book in all the Bible, then know the Old Testament well. Sadly, people think it's knowing their newspaper well that's going to help them with Revelation. It's not. Know the Old Testament, and that helps come through. And, and we'll just see more and more of these Old Testament allusions coming through here as we think about God. But here it is, the prominence of Jesus. We, we have seen the, the, the Father and the Spirit given one line each, and then Jesus given three lines. And then we see Jesus giving many more lines in verses 5 B through 6, which I'm simply calling doxology. Doxology means praise. And that's what John does in verses 5 and 6. It's all praise to Jesus. He's spoken about the Trinity. This, this revelation has come from there. Now he's going to say, praise be to Jesus. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is praise to Jesus. To him be dominion forever and ever. To him be glory, to him be honor. And we'll see Jesus worshipped throughout the, uh, the, the book of Revelation. I think prominently like we, we sang that song, Is He Worthy? Is He Worthy? Yes, Jesus is worthy. He's the one that took the scroll. He's the one that ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's the one that made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Yes, Jesus is worthy. To, he, to him be praise. And he's to be praised for the gospel. To him who loves us. That's really the, the beginning of the gospel. God's love towards us is what stirred him to act. As John wrote in one of his epistles, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is to be praised because he loved us. Not when we were beautiful or lovely, but he loved us in our sin. 
He loved us enough to rescue us and redeem us from our sins. In fact, that's how Jesus freed us from our sins. It's by His blood. That's exactly why John gives praise to Jesus. To Him who loves us and freed us from our sins by His blood. And again, right? How can you be freed from your sin? Confess your sin. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Believe His work on the cross was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. Pay the penalty for your own sins. Right? And having turned from your sin into the Lord, right? Seek to follow the Lord. You're going to see in, in Revelation, it's the overcomers who are saved. Those who are following after Christ. Because they believe in Him and, and trusting, have trusted in Him. And John says here that He's freed us from our sins. And again, you say, well, how can I be freed from our sins? Well, John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess our sins to Christ and He'll forgive them. Believe in the name of the Son of God and you'll have eternal life. John 3.16 says, right? God loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's exactly what this is talking about. He's freed us from our sins by His blood. Are you free? Do you know what it means to have your sins taken off? And as, as God says, cast as far as the east is from the west, right? Thrown into the deepest part of the sea. Or is your sin an ever-present bondage for you? Right? Just confess it to the Lord and He'll take it from you. And I just say, if we would work our way through the book of Revelation and miss this, miss this gospel, miss the forgiveness that comes through Christ, we miss the meaning of the book. Revelation is all about Jesus, Him coming to rescue us from this present evil age. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's going to come, not just loosing us of our sins, but He's going to bring us and deliver us, right, so that we can be with Him forever. That's why we pray at the end, right? Come, Lord Jesus. And verse 6 gives us reason for desiring the return of Christ. Tim who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Verse 6. He has made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> what an amazing statement there. Jesus Christ has made us a kingdom. He's made us priests. Now again, right? if you, if you know your Bible, <coughs> excuse me, if you know your Bible, Exodus 19 comes screaming at you. This, is, this was what, what God told Moses before he gave him the law. This is the, the, the language, and you, just, you pick it up there. It's picked up in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well. He's managed to be his kingdom. Listen to what God said to Israel. Exodus 19, 3 through 6. God says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Here's the content. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. God's intent for the people of Israel was to, to from the very foundation of the law, was to make them a kingdom. Make them a kingdom of priests. 
And, and, and through the giving of the law, God was going to teach what a, a priest actually was. A, a priest was to be holy, dressed in pure garments and anointed by the oil. And he was to come in and represent the people for God, right? There's the, the holy priest, right? Coming and having access, right, to God. And the only way you can have a kingdom of priests is if all of us have access to God. And we have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's aim. Aim with Israel. But now that what, what he has given to us, who've been freed from our, our sins, he's made us a kingdom. We participated in the promises to Israel that have come to us. And that's why Jesus is worthy of praise. Chapter 5, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth why jesus is worthy of of our doxology to him because he has made us into a kingdom of priests you may not feel like a priest but the reality is you are and you can even in evangelism right go and tell people of how to come to god right you're you're the one to to point them to god through jesus there is the the worship to christ okay we we move on we've seen the the trinity verses four and five the Father, the Spirit, the Son, and we have seen the doxology to Christ, verse 5 through 6. And now I'm just, I struggle with this word, but to keep up the alliteration, I, I'm just calling it visibility. I thought about entry, but I thought visibility kind of has more syllables and would work better there. Verse, verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And here's the visibility aspect of it. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is describing the coming of Jesus, which is what Revelation is about. Yes, we worship God and who it is. But okay, so now we're starting to get in some action about Jesus coming back. And he'll come in such a way that everyone on the planet will see that he has arrived. <clears throat> Every eye will see him. That's what it says in verse 6. It's the visibility aspect of it. This is exactly how Jesus described his coming. Matthew 24. He said this in 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from the one end of heaven to the other. He's talking about the return of Christ. He's going to have a big sign in the sky. And then he's going to come back and his angels are going to go and rapture his saints, if you will. This is the return of Jesus. You know, there are those who believe that Jesus is going to come in secret. He's going to secretly come and just, and just rapture his people up. And, and um, may, maybe, you've, maybe you've seen this on the screen or maybe describe that that you know like like people are walking along and all of a sudden poof like all these people disappeared and there's big news so i all we got lots of people have disappeared and we don't know where they've been have you heard that before it's like it's called the secret rapture right people go on and, and woe woe to the woe to those who are on the plane being flown by a christian because the pilot will be gone and then the plane will crash i don't believe that 
because I see that the return of Jesus described here as in every eye seeing him coming. And I see Jesus, when he describes his coming again, it's every eye is going to see him. Jesus described his return as a very visible event. And he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. That's what Jesus All the tribes of the earth will mourn as they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They're going to see Jesus come. And again, if you know your Bibles, there's a passage in the Bible that just comes screaming at you. It's from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 describes the Son of Man coming with the clouds. When Jesus said this, he's referring to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And, and John, when he writes this, it's Daniel 7, 13 and 14, describing the scene about Daniel. He says, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, and there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the peoples, languages, nations, the languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. There's the Messiah, the Son of Man, coming and establishing his kingdom. He says, I saw night visions. It's with the clouds of the heaven, there, there came one like the Son of Man. So on the clouds of the heaven, talking about Jesus descending like He will someday and establishing His kingdom, which we've already talked about, right? To Him, verse five, or 6, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever, making this kingdom and priest to our God. This is Jesus. When He returns, going to re- return with great visibility. That's what Revelation is describing for all to see when he comes to take rulership of the entire earth. He's going to squash out the rebellion with his judgment. He's going to redeem all those who have trusted in him. And on that day, there's going to be great joy. That's why I'm urging you to have this passion that says, Come, Lord Jesus, because when he comes and you see him, he's going to come as your friend. He's not coming as your enemy. He's coming as your friend. So think about Rahab. right? When the, when the people of Israel are, are coming against Jericho, Rahab had this pact, right? She, she said, I'm going to dangle this, this um, scarlet cord outside my window, and I've made this promise with you. And they promised, right? When we come, we're going to destroy all of Jericho, but you we will save. And so as, as uh, Rahab or, is up there, right, the prostitute, watching all these people of Israel come and the walls fall down, what's her perspective? Well, she might have some trembling, right? We'll just kind of scare with all these armies coming. But eventually... She and her house is saved, even though everyone else is destroyed. Everyone else is in utter terror. But she's like, okay, Israel's got this. They promised to me I'll be okay. And that's the idea with come, Lord Jesus. Your promise is way more secure than the promise of, of, of Rahab. The promise is come, Lord Jesus, and you're going to be okay when he comes. It's nothing to be scared of. He's going to wipe away all your enemies, but you as a believer in Jesus will be safe. Well, joy for believers and sorrow and anguish and turmoil for those who don't believe. In fact, we even see that again in verse 7. He's coming to the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And again, if you know your Old Testament, the passage comes screaming out at you. It's Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, where, where, where Zechariah speaks about, quoting the Lord, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, 
On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And Zechariah here is talking about the Jews in his day, talking about the Jews who put Jesus to death. But there will be a day in Jewish history, in Jewish future, wherever, where they will have their eyes open to realize that they have pierced their Messiah and they have put him to death. They've crucified their Messiah and they will mourn for their sin at that time. And according to Romans chapter 11, there'll be massive revival in the days of Israel. And, and, and verse 7 just sort of expands on that, the idea of the mourning of all the tribes. And the mourning here in verse 7 isn't mourning of repentance. It's the mourning over the, the coming judgment. It's the, the wailing on account of Him. And one of the things we see in Revelation as we get to the bulls of chapter 16, we see some of the trumpets. Those who survive the great wrath of God coming down, the pestilence and the plagues, they just shake their fists at God and they hate what's happening. We see the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6 of being underneath the rocks and, and wailing and crying out. Now, who, who can hide us from the wrath of a lamb? It's being talked about here. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They will mourn the time of his coming, but not those who have trusted in Jesus. That's the message of Revelation. He's coming back. We're safe and secure. There's nothing to be worried about. You know, oftentimes when Revelation is taught, people like get fearful. I like the future and get really anxious. And we're going to talk about this next week. But John, if you see in, in chapter 1 and verse 9, John was um, one who was persecuted, going through a difficult time, and he's writing to persecuted people to comfort them. He's not writing to scare people. If, if you get done with Revelation or scared, you've missed the whole book. You ought to get done with Revelation and just say, I can rest and trust in Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the thrust of the book. So even in the coming judgment, everyone's going to see him. Some are going to be excited and some are going to weep and wail because they know their time has drawn nigh that they're going to be judged. All right, our last point. Seen the Trinity, seen doxology, seen visibility, and now we just see sovereignty here, verse 8. Where the Lord God says this, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. And again, apocalyptic literature, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. God is not saying, I'm letters. He's not saying that. He's not made up of two giant letters. But you, you can embrace what he's saying here, right? He's the first and he's the last. And he's everything in between. He holds it all. He's the beginning. He's the end. He is the sovereign one. That's what he's saying. It's, it's merely another way of saying who is and who was and who is to come. I always am. I will bury every king. I was before every nation. And I am right now. He's the sovereign one. In fact, did you notice how God was described in this verse? It says the Lord God. That is the master God. The God who's in control God. Who was and is and is to come. He's called the Almighty. I'm the strong one. I'm the mighty one. I'm the one who has sovereignty and power here. They're both descriptions of sovereignty. Now, one of the things interesting here in the greetings is that John begins with a statement of the sovereignty of God. He ends with a statement of the sovereignty of God. 
He begins with this thing that God who is and who was and who is to come. And he ends with who is and who was and is to come. And oftentimes, right, what you begin with and what you end with is the most important thing. And so likewise, it's the, the sovereignty of God that's the most important thing. The, the New City Catechism, which I've been quoting for you in the Weekly Word, just to encourage you to look at that, work on memorizing it. What is God? Question two. God's a creator and sustainer of everybody and everything. He is eternal, uh, infinite, and unchangeable in His power, perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. And nothing happens except through Him and by His will. And this is who God is. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's unchangeable. And nothing happens except through Him and by His will. That's what these point, verses are pointing out. That's what verse 8 points out. That nothing's going to happen apart from God. So in other words, right, John, right at the beginning of Revelation, says it's all under God's control. This isn't, this isn't a world gone run amok and out of God's control. It's no... God's got the whole universe, the whole time, all in His control. And really, that's, that's the point. And it's interesting here that this, this statement here that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, not only is it just chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 8, but it also comes up at the end of Revelation. And you can even turn there if you want. We're just going to finish here super quick. In Revelation 22 and verse 13, God says this, Jesus says this, Jesus says this, Behold, I'm coming soon, Daniel 9, like the Son of Man on the clouds. I'm coming soon, bringing recompense with me to repay everyone from what he's done. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to judge the world. But in the judging of the world, there's salvation of the righteous who've trusted in him. And then Jesus himself says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. There's Trinity right there as well. Is this what the Lord God says in chapter 1, verse 8? This is what Jesus says in chapter 22, verse 13. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And we need, right, in, in, in looking through Revelation, let's not lose sight of God in Revelation. This is a book of the sovereignty of God, right? The, the beast may shake his fist at God, right? Babylon may think that they're so strong and they're so mighty, but it says in Revelation 18, in a single hour, all the might of Babylon was laid to waste. When God wants to judge, he'll judge. And everything is in his control. This because God is the God of history. History, his story. That's what Revelation is about. And sure, when John wrote this, right, there's, there's much in the future. And for us, even the coming judgment of God, there's, there's, there's still in the future some things happening but it's his story. And being is and it was and is to come, in some regards, it is a, it is a done deal. That's what Revelation is about. It's about the sovereignty of God over all the affairs of men. And we just need to keep that in mind as we go through Revelation. It, it, it's, not, it, it's not that, oh, Satan and, and God are battling on evil terms. It's Satan is, is flailing about and God is sovereign over a little bit like a parent with a three-month-old. Three-month-old might rage and rage and cry and whatever. God's got this. God is far stronger and far more mighty than any little child. And this, this world is just underneath him. God is the sovereign of it all. Well, let's pray as we close our time.
Oh, Father, I would pray that revelation would be properly understood by us. We begin to see some difficult things here, what, what the seven spirits before the throne are. Help us to understand Zechariah 4, to embrace that and come to understand the, the meaning of that political cartoon. Help us to understand this picture of you being Alpha and Omega, these, these letters of the alphabet. And, and as we go even next week to, to look at Jesus and the, the, the flaming fire and the eyes and the hair like wool, God, I, I pray that we would catch a glimpse of what you're trying to communicate with us. And, and Father, even as we've started here today with God and with you, your seat on your throne, you are the, the Lord God, the Almighty and I pray that we would bow our knees to you. Thank you that you've loved us. And by your blood, we can be forgiven of our sins if we just but cry out to you and seek to be on your side, right on the side of the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. God, conform our hearts. May, may you comfort our hearts also in Revelation that this not, might not be a, a scary thing which draws us into fear. I think of many people just caught up in conspiracy theories. It gives them much, much fear. They think they have the great insight into the mysteries of the governments and how they work, and it just draws them to fear. That's, Revelation is so far from that. When we see the mysteries of how things work, we see that you're the one in sovereign control and doesn't cause us to fear in the least. So help us, O oh God, to overcome, to walk in your ways, to seek you, to love you, that we would long for your appearing, that we would say, come, Lord Jesus. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.